If you have your Bible, let's turn to Romans chapter 8 today. We're going through Romans 8. It's one of those chapters in Romans that we've gone through slowly. And uh, it's good to do that. Maybe the greatest chapter in Scripture, depending on who you ask, but certainly one of the high points of all of the Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, then please get one of the black Bibles. It's on the end of each pew, and in that Bible, it's on page 944. We're going to be looking today at verses 29 and 30, and we'll start back where we were last week in reading, just for a little bit of context, at verse 28. Let's read that together, Romans 8, starting in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. These verses, verses 29 and 30, where God foreknew, predestined, called, justified, glorified his saints. Sometimes this is called the golden chain of redemption. Maybe you've heard that term before. Maybe that's a new one to you. Uh, but if you ever hear that, the golden chain of redemption, that's what this is talking about. Romans 8, 29, and 30, and those five concepts there that are so linked together. Uh, of course, William Perkins, back in the 1600s, wrote this massive book called The Golden Chain. And maybe that's what popularized it. But when I think of gold chains, I think of two things. And the first one is Mr. T. And if you don't know who Mr. T is, then you're younger than me, and that's good. The second thing that it makes me think of is that old saying that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. Now, what's the weak link in this chain? Is it that he foreknew, that he predestined, that he called, that he justified, that he glorified? Well, the answer is no. There is no weak link in this chain. And that's the whole point of it. This is talking about a chain that's not like anything that we've ever seen in human strength before. This is talking about a chain that's made up of God's unbreakable sovereign grace. It's rooted in the very character of God. It cannot be broken. That's to say that God saves those that he saves. He doesn't partway save them and then lose them. He doesn't sort of foreknow them, sort of predestine them, and then by the end they're not glorified. This is rooted in the very character of God, that he's sovereign, that he shows grace in a way that we can depend on. Not because we depend on something in ourselves, but because we depend completely on him. That he is good. He is all sovereign. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable and we rest our eternities on him. It's an unbreakable chain of sovereign grace. It's something that God has ordained, <clears throat> and if God ordains it, it's going to come to pass. The way that Jesus put it in John 10 is like this. Same kind of truth as Jesus was teaching it during his earthly ministry. He said this, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. That's why we have this. That's why we have this golden, unbreakable chain of God's all-powerful, all-sovereign grace towards the sinners that he saves, and it can't ever be broken. And no one can snatch anyone out of the Father's hands. So let's look at these five links on the chain of God's unbreakable, sovereign grace toward lowly sinners like you and me who come to Christ. First link is this, in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew. He foreknew. Now, before we get to the word foreknew, I just want to acknowledge that verse 29 starts with the word for. Now, why is that there? It's saying because. Well, what what came before it that it's saying because about? Verse 28 came before it, that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So what we're looking at today is the reason why all things work together for good for those who love God. The reason is God's unbreakable sovereign grace. He's made the decision that he will work for the good of his people and that he's going to carry it out from beginning to end. It can't be broken. But the first link in that chain is those whom he foreknew. I'm going to tell you a personal story here because sometimes people will ask me how I became a Calvinist. If you wonder, what is a Calvinist? Well, it usually just means somebody who believes in the doctrine of predestination and election, something like that, roughly. And sometimes I, I encounter Christians who are just fascinated that I would actually believe something like that. And, and they ask, well, how in the world? Who told you about that? That's so bizarre. And I always tell them the truth, which is that the book of Romans is what persuaded me to be a Calvinist. It's because it's laid out here in this text. And when I was about 20 years old, uh, I, I, was, I, I, I thought I knew everything. Doesn't every 20-year-old know everything? <laughs> But I was having a conversation with somebody who challenged me because I was, I was in this position that I'm sure you've heard before. Well, God knew who would believe, and God set things up around what kind of people would believe and wouldn't believe. And, uh, you know, I, there's all kinds of labels for what I was at that point. I didn't know those labels, but they, they, this person said, hey, why don't you sit down and just really carefully study Romans 8, 9, 10, and 11? And I said, I'll do that. And I didn't want to be wrong. And, and as I got to Romans 9 especially, I thought, this sure doesn't sound like what I thought was the way that God saves people. And especially Romans 11 too, this idea of those who are chosen by grace. But when I came to Romans 8.29, I kept hanging my, my hope of not being wrong on this word foreknew. I kept thinking to myself, it must mean that he foreknew who would believe. So I inserted in there for myself words that are not in the verse to try to make it make sense according to my idea that free will must be the, 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 the last word on who gets saved. It must be man's free will. I, I would say, well, it must be those whom he foreknew would believe. Now, over the course of a few months, 
God used the rest of the book of Romans to change my mind about that because you just can't make that fit with especially chapter 9. You also can't make it fit with Ephesians 1 or John 6 or the book of Revelation or the whole Old Testament or pretty much anything else in the Bible. But I was trying to make it work. It wouldn't work. Let me tell you the problem with adding the words would believe after the word foreknew in Romans 8.29. In fact, let me tell you four problems with it. And there's probably more than four. Here's the first problem, is that adding, if you're adding the words for new who would believe, you're adding words. That's the first problem. Those words are not there. What it says is not he foreknew who would believe. It says he foreknew them. He foreknew individuals. He foreknew us, his people. He fore those whom he foreknew. It doesn't say that he foreknew some quality about them. And if we want to say that he foreknew some sort of a quality about certain people, then you could really insert any quality there. In fact, a lot of the old patristic theologians back in church history would say that the quality that he foreknew was moral fitness, that he was looking down the tunnel of time to see who it was going to be who was morally upstanding enough for him to decide, oh, this is a person I will save and bring to heaven. The fact is, if you're going to insert the words would believe, you could really insert would be morally fit or would like candy corn or would anything. You could make up any quality that you want and put it in there, but the fact is those words are not there. It doesn't say that he foreknew some quality about people. It says he foreknew those individual people. That's just what it says. The second problem with adding those words is that if you make it about foreseen faith or some foreseen quality in man, then what that's doing is it's making God not really be in control. Because if God is not the one who determines what qualities a person has, then who is the one who determines what qualities a person has? Where is all this stuff coming from? A lot of times people will say, and this was my feeling when, back when I was a 20-year-old Pelagian. I didn't know what that word meant, but that's what I was. I, I, th I thought, well, God in eternity past knew everything so that he could look eternally down the tunnel of time and see exactly what is going to happen, see exactly what every person is going to be like, see who it is who would believe in him, and therefore, he navigates all of this perfectly to arrange things according to his will. It's almost like saying that God's really, really good at playing Super Mario Brothers, right? So that he knows exactly what's coming on every level. He knows just where he has to jump to smash every turtle and go down the right pipes and all these things and save the princess in the end. God's just awesome at it. But then you've got the problem, who made the game? Who invented the levels? Who set all of this up? If God is simply looking to see these foreknown things that he has no control over, who does have control over them? Some sort of force. We don't know what, would, what that would be, but it makes it a mystery to know what is that force that's bigger than God that's setting up the course of history and the qualities of human beings that God would then have to navigate for himself. What it does is it makes God less than God. A third problem with adding those words, would believe there, is that he has already said in the book of Romans that nobody would believe. But listen to this. This is back from Romans 3, verses 9 through 12. 
he says, all, both Jews and Greeks, are under the power of sin. As it is written, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So you know what the book of Romans actually says. If you were trying to set up that hypothetical scenario where God is looking ahead to foreknow who would believe, it says right here, there is no such person. That we are totally depraved. That our sin has so affected us that even hearing the gospel in our, our, our own sin nature, absolutely none of us would by our free will come to God and turn ourselves over in repentance and in faith. None of us would seek God. Not me, not you, none of us. Not Jews, not Greeks, not barbarians, not kids who grew up in church, not kids who grew up in atheist homes. Nobody would seek God in their hearts in faith if it weren't for a miracle of God that's about to come a little bit further on, those whom he called. So there is no such thing as a person that God would foresee as a believer because no person is like that. That's what the Bible says. That's what this book of the Bible says. And a fourth problem with inserting the words would believe is that the Bible uses the word foreknow in a different way than that when it's talking about God's foreknowledge. Now, this word's not used very much in the New Testament. There's a couple of times when it's used about human beings, and it's when it's used about human beings that it, it usually use, is used in the terms of, well, they knew something in advance. But every single time in the New Testament where God is the subject of the foreknowing, where he's the one who foreknows, it means something different than that. It means either that he has foreordained what is going to come to, to pass, or that he entered into a knowing, loving relationship with someone beforehand. So I'll, I'll just read you the instances of it. In Acts 2.23, it says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. That's not talking about, well, God just kind of saw what might happen if he sent his son and said, oh, no, I'll figure out how to work this. No, it's talking about his plan. For the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, that is his decreed will, that he has decided how this was going to happen. And then you have these instances where it means pretty clearly having a love relationship with someone beforehand. Two instances of that. Romans 11.2. It says, God has not rejected his people. He's talking about Israel, ethnic Israel. He says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. What does that mean? Well, that means that he already had a, a love relationship with them. He knew them beforehand in this intimate knowledge. And then there's 1 Peter 1.20. He, Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Now, if Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, is that about that, that God the Father knew that Jesus the Son was the kind of person who would believe? No, it's talking about that there was a love relationship that was established in advance. And that's what it's talking about here. It, it, it's talking about 
knowing in this way of setting his love upon us, that this is God's electing, choosing love that he, in the sovereignty of his will, has decided to give to us. When, when this talks about God foreknowing certain people, it doesn't mean that he looked to see certain qualities in them and then decide based on those qualities that he would save them. It means that he sovereignly, before the foundation of the world, chose who it is that he was going to save, who it is that he would know and love in this intimate way. He didn't foreknow something about us. He foreknew us, believers. He foreknew us. It means the same thing that's spoken of in Revelation chapter 13 and also Revelation chapter 17, that the people that God saves are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. That's what it says. It's not because of qualities he saw in us. It's according to the counsel of his will, as it says in Ephesians 1.3. According to the counsel of his will. It's to the praise of his glorious grace, not to the praise of our propensity to exercise our free will. It's about his grace. And that's what we need to see here. Not just what it doesn't mean, but what it does mean. This means that God has set his gracious love on sinners from before the foundation of the world, before they ever came into being, before we ever sinned. He already knew everything. He had it planned out, and he willed to know us and to love us and to save us. Here's what it says in Romans 9, 15 and 16. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This is something that we can be thankful for. God has had mercy to me. He didn't have to have mercy to me. He wasn't under obligation because of something about my heart or my will. God took the initiative to save me. That's comforting. That is comforting. The way that it's put in Romans 11, verses 5 and 6, at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works, otherwise grace would no longer be grace. Guys, this is unconditional. This is unconditional choosing, unconditional election. God's unconditional love toward us. And when we say unconditional love, a lot of times people think of that in human terms, like, boy, he's putting me through a hard time, but I'm going to choose to love him anyway. No, guys, God's unconditional love is is, is what David Powlison, before he went to be with the Lord, that he used to call it God's contra-conditional love. It's that God has decided to love us in, in spite of the fact that we were not the kind of people who would love him. We were not the kind of people who would believe. We were not the kind of people who would deserve it. And there was no such thing. God's choosing, God's electing love is unconditional. It's based not on anything where you could look and see, here is why that person deserved it. Here are the qualities that that person had. It's based on the purposes of his sovereign will. It's rooted in his character, not in our character, in his grace, 
not in our goodness. Here's what it says in Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That means before the foundation of the world, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit agreed in the person of God himself that he was going to save specific sinners. He didn't choose us in ourselves. He didn't choose us for something about us. He chose us in Christ. Meaning here, here's the one condition that Jesus' blood would be shed for us. That Jesus would go to the cross with our names graven on his heart. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us. That's foreknowing us. In love he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So what we can do with this is we can rejoice at God's sovereign grace. When we think about the fact that we've come to faith in Jesus, you may have fought for years and years to say to yourself, but I know that I came by my free will. That has to be the thing that was the determining factor. We can look at God and we can say, God, thank you for changing my will. Thank you for choosing me. Thank you for your free grace. Not conditional love, but free grace that you've poured out on me. Most of the time when people get upset about this idea that God chooses who to save, it's because they think that he ought to save everyone. Or because they think that God ought to save some specific person that they're thinking of, that they care about, that they are worried might not be saved. But we just have to say that that viewpoint starts out with the assumption that God is under some obligation to sinners. That God is under some obligation to save people based on the qualities found in those people. Guys, God's election is unconditional. Unconditional. And if we start to think to ourselves, well, God ought to be under obligation to choose more people, to save more people, just remember the angels. Remember the angels. A third of the angels sinned against God, fell, became demonic spirits, and there is no plan of salvation for the sinful angels. There is none. There is no such thing as an angel who sinned against God that God then redeemed by the blood of Jesus. They will all be lost, and deservedly so. And just remember, we're lower than the angels. And yet, in his sovereign grace, that he has graciously chosen to save you, believing sinner. And that he has graciously chosen that Jesus would shed his blood to save a vast multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he will save them by his sovereign grace. So that's what we need to praise God for. We shouldn't hold some sort of a grudge against God at the idea that he might not save everyone. We should be in awe of the fact that he has chosen to save sinners and to save so many. It's just this incredible grace to the praise of his glory. Second link on this unbreakable chain of sovereign grace, the first one is those whom he foreknew. You might even say those whom he chose or elected. But the second link on this chain is that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He predestined. 
Now that's the word that most people use as the shorthand for all of this, predestination. But he's setting it apart here a little bit from God's choice. That God foreknew, God chose, and those whom he chose, he predestined. So what this is getting at, the predestination, sometimes predestination is spoken of in terms of who it is that God chose, but here it's talking about how God will get us to the destination that he's chosen for us. He has picked the destination for those whom he foreknew, and he's going to get us there. The destination is coming up at the end. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. The destination is glory, and for those whom he foreknew, he is going to carry us along to glory. He says specifically, and we talked about this a little bit last week, because these are the verses, this is the, the, the explanation for the good that's spoken of in Romans 8.28. So I won't spend too much time on this because we talked about it last week, but that good that he's destined us for is said in verse 29 to be that we would be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That's a description of the glory that he has us headed toward right there. That's the good that he's working for in all things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose, that we would be conformed to the image of Christ, starting right now in this time, in this life, where he makes us more like Christ from the time that we come to believe, from the time that our, our sins are forgiven, that we become Christians, God starts working on us in a process called sanctification, which means growing in holiness, making us more like Jesus, conforming us to the image of Christ. By the way, that's not a straight line on a graph, that sanctification, okay? Some days you take dips, all right? But God works on us. He is in this process of conforming us to the image of Christ, but where it's coming forever and ever is that day of the redemption of our bodies when we stand complete before Christ at the resurrection, there, this is what we're predestined for. This is what we're headed toward. It's our destination. And not only the things that would happen just internally to us, but what all of this is for, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, that, that he would be glorified in us, through us, before us, as we get to see in all eternity this vast multitude from every tribe and tongue and nation that he has purchased with his blood, that he foreknew, that he's predestined, that he called and justified, and will see them in his glory forever and ever. That's what he has predestined us for. You know what you need to do when you think of predestination? Most people, when they think of predestination and wonder what to do, the answer is argue. But what we can do as believers who see this word right here in the scriptures and we see the way that it's presented to us is we need to do what the scripture is calling us to do here, which is to be comforted by this truth. This is presented to us here as comfort to the suffering. I want to remind you of that. These verses, verses 29 and 30, they're easy to kind of take out and just say, okay, here, he, these are... This is the golden chain of redemption. This, this is how we understand God's salvation from eternity past to eternity future and that we're secure and we're elected and predestined, all these things. It's easy to just separate it out. But remember, this whole portion of Scripture is an encouragement to sufferers. 
Sufferers who are trusting in Christ and wondering, how could God be taking me through this? And part of the consolation to sufferers is to say, you're trusting in Jesus. You don't understand what he's taking you through. You don't understand the whole path, but you need to know the destination, and you need to know that God has perfectly planned things for you. He has predestined your conformity to the image of Christ. He has predestined your glory. He has made sure that things are going to happen for your good for all eternity. That's what this is talking about when he says, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So be comforted in that. When, when you're tempted to be anxious, to worry about all kinds of things, you can cast your cares on him because he cares for us. That's another way to think of this, where we're tempted to just say, I'm going to win an argument on the internet about predestination. Why don't you first sit down and let it soak into your heart? What an encouraging and gracious and comforting truth this is, that your destiny is in God's hands. Mm, Praise God for that. We need that encouragement of God's unbreakable sovereign grace. The next link on this chain is it says that he foreknew, he predestined, and those whom he predestined, verse 30, he also called. He also called. This calling, as I explained last week, because it was mentioned in Romans 8, 28 also, but I'll just say it again, what it's talking about is effectual calling. There is a kind of call where every time a sinner is called and invited to come to faith in Jesus, That is a call that we call an external call or a general call. And we need to do this a lot. This this is what Scripture calls us to do, to go and to make disciples, to preach the gospel to all creation, that we need to consistently be calling people to Jesus. But all that we can do is an external call. We, We can send the words, but what God can do is God can bring an effectual call, an internal call. The Holy Spirit can take the gospel that has come to someone's ears as just words, and he can turn it into the power of God unto salvation, as it says in Romans 1. He can apply the truth of the gospel, the blood of Christ shed for that sinner. He can take that message, make it sink deep down in someone's heart, Take away their unbelief, their heart of stone, Ezekiel calls it. Give them a heart of belief, a heart of flesh, Ezekiel calls it. And call us to himself powerfully, powerfully. This is effectual calling. It's what Jesus taught in John six forty four that we prayed from a little while ago. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. It's saying there is no such thing as a person who can come in their free will of their flesh to Jesus. You just can't do it because you don't want to and you never will in your flesh. But the Father is able to draw sinners. The Father is able to do a miracle. Did you know that when you came to faith in Jesus, believer, you may not know this even though it actually happened. When you came to faith in Jesus, that was a miracle. And I don't use the word miracle lightly. 
I don't call the birth of every baby a miracle. I don't call the sunrise and the sunset a miracle. Those are things that just happen by the natural order that God has set up all the time. They're remarkable, they're special, but I'm talking about an actual supernatural overcoming of how things would go unless God directly intervened. This is a miracle that a sinner lost apart from Christ would have their hearts changed, would have the gift of repentance, the gift of faith, the gift to look to Jesus and believe, the gift to be drawn to Jesus. And whenever that happens, we know, it says, that when the Father has, who sent me draws him, I will raise him up on the last day. It's not going to fail. You know, if it, if it were up to man's will, well, let me put it this way. Let's just say what John MacArthur said. If we could lose our salvation, we would. If it were my will that got me into God's kingdom, my will could just as easily take me out of God's kingdom. But this was a miraculous call of God. This was the drawing of the Father by the Holy Spirit. Or another way that it's put, 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. We talked about this together on Thanksgiving Eve. It says, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. And how did Paul have that confidence that these were God's elect people, that they were chosen by God? He says, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He's saying, I'm confident that God foreknew you and predestined you because I saw the evidence that he had called you, that he had brought the gospel to you, not in this sort of a wish-washy way where you're like, yeah, let's try Jesus, but no, in the Holy Spirit and in power and with full conviction to trust in Christ alone. This is, this is not Jesus knocking on the door of your heart and trying so hard to get you to let him in while he's just out there powerless. By the way, that, that verse about I stand at the door and knock, that's in the, the letter to the church at Laodicea in Revelation. It's about a lukewarm church that is at risk of becoming a Christless church. And he's saying to the church, let me back in. But when it comes to your heart, when it comes to your heart, this is the powerful, powerful, miraculous overcoming of the human will, the changing of the human will to call us in his power. Here's what happened after Paul preached the gospel in Antioch and Pisidia in Acts 13, 48. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. You hear that? That's the golden chain of redemption right there. He's saying there were those out there, these unbelieving Gentiles in this town out there somewhere who God had foreknown, God had predestined, God had appointed to eternal life. And because of that, when the gospel came to their ears, they believed. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. It's, it's being appointed in eternity past, going from dead in our trespasses to then alive in Christ. One of the great illustrations of this wasn't necessarily something that happened just for this purpose, obviously, but when Jesus called Lazarus, the dead man, back to life. 
That's the kind of call that we're talking about when we say an effectual call. It says in John eleven forty three, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He's saying to a dead man in his tomb, come out of the tomb. Now, let me ask you this. Did Jesus call that to Lazarus because he foreknew that Lazarus would be the kind of dead man who would in his free will choose to come out of his tomb? Absolutely not. Dead men don't do that. And we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So that when, when Jesus called to Lazarus, he didn't say, Lazarus, I'm knocking at the door of your tomb, please, please. No, he said, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. And his hands and his feet were bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with cloth. That's what happens. That is the kind of miracle that happens. That's the way Jesus described it in John 5, is the dead hearing his voice and coming to life. So what do we do with that, the idea that God calls? Well, call people with the gospel. Keep doing it. Keep on externally calling people to come to faith in Christ and pray that God would call people with the Spirit. It says in 2 Corinthians 3, 6, that God has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. You know what you keep doing? You keep giving the letter of the gospel. Keep telling them the words, but pray that the Spirit would come and give them life to call them to faith like he's called us. And then the fourth chain link is this. Those whom he called, he also justified. Now, how does he justify us? I, I don't want to rewind a little bit. When, when we were talking about where it says foreknew, I said over and over, it does not mean he foreknew would believe. Don't misunderstand and think that we're saying that there are people who are saved who don't believe. That's not the case. We, we, we can't erase the first four chapters of Romans that are all about this fact that we are justified by faith alone. So when he says justified, he's talking about they have faith. He says it in Romans chapter 4 about, uh, about Abraham, he quotes Genesis fifteen six where it says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Guys, that's, when he says those he justified, he means that in his calling, he brought them to faith. And through the instrument of faith, he justifies. Now, I've got to back up because not everybody knows what the word justifies means. What does that mean? It means that we sinners are going to stand before God one day. And there has to be some way for us to be declared just or else we're doomed. Because if we're just going to stand before God and plead our case of saying, well, I'm a good enough person, you should let me into heaven, the reality is, no, you're not. You're just not. Jesus said there is no one good but God alone. And I'm not God alone. I don't know about you. I do know about you. We have to have our sins forgiven somehow. 
That's what it's talking about with being justified. How can we go from being an enemy of God to being right with God, to being righteous in his sight? And the answer that the book of Romans gives consistently, and the rest of Scripture too, is that we can be right with him by faith alone and not by anything that we do, not by works Another place that it's, it's put this way is in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever, what, works well enough for him? Now, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And, and what we find out here in, in Romans 8, verse 30, is that the reason that they believe is because of that miracle of God to call, to call, to create faith so that by faith we stand with our sins forgiven before God. We need to know that ultimately the cause of our having our sins forgiven, of our being right with God, is not our wills. It's not something in us. It's not a condition about us. It's rooted in the will of God from eternity past. And he brought it about through the blood of Jesus. And he applied it to us through the instrument of faith and not by works. It's all a work of God. But you know what you can do as we see this? We can trust in Christ. And we can say, as I trust in Christ, as I know that he's called me to himself, as I know that I believe I know that he has cast my sins as far as the east is from the west. Now, I do want to say this to those who may be here who don't believe today. You might have a hundred different reasons for not believing. You, you, you might have a hundred different excuses. But the fact is that at some point you just have to have the wall come down where you're trying to block yourself off from the fact that you're a sinner against God and that you'll stand before him in judgment one day. If that's the case, I want to call you to believe. And if the Holy Spirit is calling you to believe, then you will. But come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. He freely offers himself. He freely offers his grace. Some of the things that we're talking about today are hard to wrap our minds around. Because we're talking about things that are wrapped up in the mind of God from eternity past. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't be talking about them because he put them here in the Bible for us to know for our good. So we should be talking about them. But what I don't want you to do is I don't want you to think because this is all wrapped up in the mind of God from eternity past and it's weird and these people don't believe in evolution or whatever other reason you have while you're trying to block yourself off from your accountability to God, You need to know that Jesus died on the cross for sinners like you, that Jesus freely offers you to come to him and have eternal life. And so come. From your perspective, this is very simple. You don't have to have some sort of a theological degree or some sort of an understanding of something that's incomprehensible. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. And as we believe in the Lord Jesus and we're saved, we need to look and we need to say, wow, 
what has God told me about this in the scriptures? He's told me that this is by his grace. His grace, sovereignly, from first to last. And what is the last? Well, the last is this. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's chain link number five in this unbreakable chain of God's sovereign grace. Where it says, he also glorified. It's kind of interesting that we have it translated here for us as the past tense. This thing that is in the future for us. We're thinking about glory thinking about heaven and not just the heaven that you'll go to if you die right now, but also being resurrected from the dead one day when Jesus returns and living in his presence in the new Jerusalem for all eternity and eating from the tree of life with its 12 fruits that, that it bears in season. All of these things that we have of just the, the future of being with Jesus forever in glory. He says, Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Why does it say it like that? Well, Greek doesn't necessarily have the same kind of tenses that we do. We just think, well, there's future, there's present, there's past. Maybe a couple others that you'll think through if you're an English teacher, right? But but this is about, hey, this is a completed thing in God's mind. This is as good as done. From the fact that God has chosen and foreknown someone, it is as good as done that they will be glorified. There's no break in the chain. If, if somebody has been called and justified by God, there's no losing your salvation here. There's no being snatched out of the Father's hand. There's no sinning to the point where you are now lost. Now, there are those who are false professors. There are those who pretend to be called. There are those who pretend to be Christians who then later expose themselves not to be. That's not what I'm talking about, though. I'm saying that if God has foreknown and predestined and called and justified, you will be glorified. It's as good as done from eternity past to eternity future. It involves all the steps along the way. These these verses are not intended to tell us all of the steps along the way. There's others listed in Scripture, especially things like sanctification and perseverance. As we've been justified, we're also going to be sanctified. It says in Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You don't say to yourself, okay, God's going to get me to the end so I don't have to be holy. No, that's part of how he's going to get you to the end. You don't say, well, God's going to get me to the end, and so therefore I, I don't have to do anything. No, Revelation 2.7 says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 14.12 says, here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So all of those things are in front of us, but there is a gracious promise from God here, right? Yes, there's a lot involved in the Christian life. But believer, you're going to make it. You're going to make it. He's not going to let you go. As he says in Jude, verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory 
with great joy. Saying right there, he will hold you fast. He's going to keep you from eternity past to eternity future. What's that going to be like in glory? Well, it says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those of us who love him. That's something to set your heart on, to know God's going to get me there. So whatever are the steps in between, I can trust in God's sovereign grace, and I can rejoice in what he's doing. All of this is a golden chain. It's an unbreakable chain of God's sovereign grace, and it comes together like this, John 6, 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are the one who is sovereign in our salvation. Lord, we experience so much. And those of us who've come to faith in Christ, we experienced the changing of our wills. We experienced that conversion that you brought about in our hearts. It's miraculous. God, I pray that you might do that miracle for more and more people, even, even right now, to show them Christ and their sin and their need for salvation and the free offer of the gospel. And I pray that it would come to them, not just in letter, but in spirit and in power. Lord, I pray that you would give us as believers just a full trust in Jesus that would manifest itself in casting our cares on you, knowing that you care for us, that you have the end plan from the beginning. And Father, I pray that you and you alone would be the one who is glorified and praised as we are humbled by the fact that we are saved not because of some quality in us, but in spite of the qualities in us. Lord, thank you for being so gracious toward us as sinners. Lord, keep us in your hand. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.